Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. A big True Blue Crime thank you to all my listeners and supporters for helping me reach episode 100 of the podcast. It's been an amazing and learning filled journey from Memorial Day weekend to Labor Day weekend. While I will be taking a short break from this podcast after this two episode series, I will be focusing my efforts on two more podcasts, True Blue Crime Investigates and True Blue Crime Premium. The first will be a podcast centered around cases that are either completely unsolved, the main suspect was not convicted, or it's a missing persons case with an unknown ending. True Blue Crime Premium will be a Patreon PayPal exclusive podcast with episodes only available to subscribers. But I will keep making free episodes of True Blue Crime and True Blue Crime Investigates. Let's get to the rest of the business and then this episode. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And just as a side note, uh, I don't normally plead for shares. Uh, things were going really well when it came to downloads and and listener outreach uh, over the last month or so, but then with Stitcher pulling itself out of the free podcast platform. About 50% of my downloads were Stitcher, so I've taken a pretty significant hit in terms of downloads uh, over the past few days. So if you could, whatever platform you're listening to on, if it allows you to rate and review the show, please do. If you can hop onto any form of social media and share the website or the podcast, I'd greatly appreciate it. It's, it's just something where at this point in time, I'm not getting a whole lot of Patreon and PayPal support, which I totally understand, but I also can't afford to do a lot of advertising or outreach, so I'm kind of relying on you guys, the listeners, to do that. Again, I definitely appreciate it. This episode is actually a episode that was requested by my good friend Mike, who has done great work in sharing the podcast with friends and co-workers and so again just as a thank you to mike this is the episode he requested and if all of you could just take a second out of your day or a minute i guess not just a second but a minute to rate and review the show and share the show and tell some other people about it it would be great to rebuild that that listener platform that i lost uh, when stitcher pulled the plug so but that's enough of that. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In 1770, Captain James Cook of the British Navy claimed the east coast of the continent of Australia for Great Britain. Like all claims, this ignored the fact the continent was already settled by the Aboriginal people. Great Britain saw this expansive and wild country as an opportunity to solve problems facing the world's superpower. After losing the colonies of North America in the Revolutionary War, they needed new lands to settle and tax to reaffirm their empire. England and Ireland were smaller islands and the harsh laws and long prison sentences for petty crimes meant the prisons on the islands were overflowing with criminals guilty of everything from petty theft to murder. The wilds of Australia were the perfect place to send these unwanted citizens. Once released from their sentences, 
most would not be able to afford the cost of a trip back to their homeland, so essentially Great Britain was able to toss away all of its unwanted people, and most of them were poor and or Irish. For 80 years, the practice of shipping convicts to Australia resulted in the displacement of roughly 162,000 people to various penal colonies throughout the states of Australia. The practice ended in 1868 after growing protests from the political elites that had settled in the New World. One of those convicts, a man named John Red Kelly, was arrested in Ireland in 1841 and he was found guilty of stealing two hogs. He was sent by prison ship to Hobart, Tasmania, and landed at the penal colony in 1842. Six years later, after serving his sentence, he traveled through Victoria and found work on a farm as a bush carpenter. Two years after arriving at the farm, he married the farmer's daughter, 18-year-old Ellen Quinn, a fellow Irishwoman. Gold was discovered in the area, and the young couple set their sights on the precious metal and found enough of it to buy some land and build a house just north of Melbourne. The land was suitable for cattle grazing, and the Irish Roman Catholic family started having children to help work the farm. One of those children would grow up to become the most famous outlaw in Australia's history. To some, he was a cold-hearted murderer, and to others, he was Australia's Robin Hood. This is the story of Ned Kelly. Edward, nicknamed Ned Kelly, was born as the oldest son and third of eight children to Red and Ellie Kelly. His exact date of birth is unknown, but historians have estimated it to be December of 1854. Ned's oldest sibling died as an infant before he was born. He had an older sister, Annie, and younger sisters, Margaret, Catherine, and Grace. He also had two younger brothers named James and Daniel. Ned was said to be a strong and brave young boy, once risking his life to save a fellow local child who fell into a river. The child was of good standing and the child's mother presented Ned with a silk sash for his bravery. Ned kept that sash the rest of his life. And I'd heard the stories of Ned Kelly. As, as I've mentioned before, I spent a good chunk of my childhood in Australia. So I grew up learning about Ned Kelly, uh, reading books about Ned Kelly. So this kind of brings me back to my childhood. I watched... A movie the other day kind of in preparation for doing this episode on Ned Kelly and I think it was called the true history of the Ned Kelly gang something along those lines it was just done a couple years ago by filmmakers in Australia and it's a a very artistic and violent and dark adaptation of the Ned Kelly story and there are parts of it that do seem to be based very much in what is believed to be the reality of the story. And then there's a lot of what I deem to be the creative exploration of possible parts of life. But I do remember this part, and it's difficult because this is a time period when there isn't a lot of written record in, in these poor Irish convict settler families going on here. It's not as if they're writing bibliographies about these people as they're going through their childhood or as they're going through their life. So a lot of the stories about Ned Kelly are based on either roughed fact or what could be fiction. But it, it seems pretty clear that, that this story about this boy falling in the river, and even when I read some supposed newspaper articles from 
from back in the day that hailed Ned as a hero. This this boy apparently had a new straw hat and it blew in the wind and landed in this fallen tree right on the edge of the river and the, the boy went to get his straw hat and fell in and Ned saw this and, and Ned wasn't the strongest swimmer but he was a strong kid so he was able to go in and, and save this kid from drowning and the family was a wealthier British family and in the movie the mother offers to pay for Ned to go to a private school and this is because Ned was supposedly a very intelligent child. He was very strong, but also very smart. And Ned's mother, Ellie, at least in the movie, refuses to allow this to happen. She feels as if this British family is coming in and stealing her firstborn Irish son. And so there's a lot of resentment uh, towards this, this family. Although the mother lets him keep his sash, and in the movie it's a big deal, and and we're going to get to Ned Kelly's demise near the end of this, but it was said that during his final shootout with the police, he was actually wearing this sash under his armor, and this is 20 years later, roughly, so he kept this sash his whole life, so it was a pretty big deal to him. It just, he was born into very tough circumstances. Almost immediately after their purchase of the property north of Melbourne, Red Kelly started drinking heavily. With no money coming in and what money they did make going to alcohol for Red, the family fell on hard times. To make matters worse, British police, chosen by elites back in Great Britain, had been ordered to round up the free people of the bush and charge them with whatever petty crimes they could. This led to many weak or fabricated charges against members of the Kelly family. Red Kelly, Ned's father, was jailed for the theft of a calf, and after his six-month sentence, he passed away, leaving Ellie with seven children to raise. They eventually abandoned their home and farm and moved north, out of the reach of the Melbourne-based police. So this is a time period where it was somewhat of a free-for-all, land was readily available, but wherever people would settle, eventually the British police would settle into that area as well, and I call them the British police. They were part of the government of Victoria, but they were basically overseen by the British government. And there's a long-standing issue between British government and, and the poor Irish. So this just kind of continued over in Australia. And in again, I'm going to reference this movie a lot because I think they did a good job of making these stories make more sense now in the movie it's ned that goes out and kills a, a, this calf uh, to bring food home for the family because his father's a drunk the the kids are starving his, his little brothers and sisters are starving and with with no money coming in he goes and, and kills one of the neighbor's calves and hauls chunks of meat back to the family farm so that they can eat and a police sergeant comes along sees a slaughtered calf and i think ned wanted to take responsibility for it but his father wouldn't let him so his father gets sent away for the the slaughter and theft of this calf and it's not long after red kelly gets out of prison that he ends up dying from from health issues related to his drinking and so actually the family actually moves north to land that is owned by their grandfather, Ellie's, Ellie's father. And so they've, they've established themselves back into this 
northeast area of Victoria. So it's kind of on the border with New South Wales, and it's kind of the Wild West of Australia at this point. Uh, if you're all my Australian listeners will be very familiar with the geography of Australia, but if you haven't visited or aren't familiar with the geography, there's a, a, a gorgeous area. This, this part of northeast Victoria, southwest New South Wales, this is where the Australian Alps are. It's a, so this is the Snowy River area of Australia. It's a lot of rolling hills, beautiful forests. But if you go too far north and west, you start to run into the outback. And it is just desolate, hard terrain to live in. So really, even though this is just not too far in off the coast of Australia, it really is the edge of the frontier back in in this time period in the the 1850s, 1860s. And this land, because it's kind of the edge of the frontier, this is before you hit the desert rough area, this has been land that has been worked by long-standing cattle farmers, and they didn't take kindly to the migrant invaders. And so the Kellys soon found themselves under the oppressive boot of the British police once again. They responded by forming a close-knit association of families akin to an Irish clan, and the area around the new Kelly farm became known as Kelly Country. So again, there's, there's very wealthy cattle herd owners that have been allowing their cattle to graze in this land that's not really owned by anyone. And so when the, the Kellys and other Irish migrant worker families move into the area to try to establish their own operations, these wealthy cattle grazers call up the the police and say, hey, come up here and and whatever you did down to scare them out of wherever they were before, you come up there and do that again up here. We don't want them up here. But Kelly country was in the heart of the Australian bush, an area of eucalyptus forest, mountains, and rough terrain. In the 1860s, it was wild country, akin to the American West, but with even less law and order. The Bushmen were known as tough survivalists, good horsemen, and had been trained in firearms for hunting and protection since they were children. The now 14-year-old Ned had grown into a strong and tough teenager with a strong hatred for the police. After he was introduced to a family friend, a bush ranger named Harry Power, he started riding with the Australian equivalent of a Wild West outlaw. After a life of petty crime and cattle driving, the 50-year-old power had taken to robbing carriages filled with gold and valuables from the gold-rich areas of Victoria. Witnesses to the crime said that Harry had a teenage accomplice during the crimes who would look after the bush ranger's horses, and that teenager was Ned Kelly. Word spread that Ned was involved in the robberies, and in April of 1870, he was arrested after three victims of separate robberies filed reports with the police. Ned was arrested and brought to trial for the first two robberies, but the victims could not identify him in person. The police failed to let the third victim try to identify him before they shipped him off to Melbourne to stand trial for the crimes. The magistrate, having found that the police had no actual evidence Ned was involved in the crimes, released Ned without any charges. The particular of these trials is still debated to this day by historians. Some believe the police, under pressure to convict someone for the highway robberies, arrested Ned and hoped to obtain charges with little to no evidence. Others claim members of the Kelly clan threatened witnesses into saying they couldn't identify Ned so he would be set free. Further confusion about the incident is documentation from the original robbery reports that state 
Harry Power's accomplice was a mixed-race male of Aboriginal and white ancestry. Ned was very much a white male of pure Irish descent, but some historians believe he was so unwashed and dirty that he may have passed for a mixed-race male during the robberies. After his close brush with incarceration or death sentence for assisting Harry, many people believe Ned tipped off police that Harry was hiding out on his grandfather's property. While it was true that Harry was arrested in June of 1870, there is proof that Ned's uncle turned Harry in for a $500 bounty worth around $10,000 today. Trouble found Ned again in October of 1870. He got into a fight with a man while defending one of his friends and he broke the man's nose. He was sentenced to six months of hard labor and was released after five months in March of 1871. In April of 1871, a friend of Ned's brother-in-law named Isaiah Wright visited the family land on a borrowed horse. Isaiah had taken the horse from the local postmaster without permission, but Ned claimed to not know this and believed Isaiah had been given the horse to try and locate another mare that had run off in the night. Ned claimed two neighbors found the missing mare a few days later and Ned volunteered to return the horse, but first rode it to a nearby town where he stayed for four days. During his return on the mare, he was stopped by a local constable who suspected Ned was on a stolen horse. And so before we get into what actually happens during this arrest, this entire few paragraphs about this horse incident, it's difficult because it's a time period, obviously well before motor vehicles, but I the way I could best run this through in my head was what happens when somebody steals a car and then gives that car to somebody else saying that they had permission from the owner of that car to drive it. The The second person, the one that didn't actually steal the car, now they might not be telling the truth when they say that they didn't know this car was stolen, but there's also the possibility that they honestly didn't know and believe that the person who had that car had rights to drive it. And that's kind of the situation here where Isaiah borrows this horse and it's not that horse, it's actually the mare that is on the loose that Ned finds. And so in reality, it's more of the story that Ned got from this Isaiah guy about this mare getting loose and legitimately Ned believed that Isaiah was looking for this mare. So when Ned's neighbors supposedly find this mare, Ned's just under the impression that it's just a horse that got loose. And so he takes his time returning the horse, first using it to get into town to hang out for a few days. And it's on the way out that he stopped on this supposedly mare that got loose but in reality many people believe the horse was stolen just like the one isaiah borrowed and constable edward hall ordered ned to follow him to the police station to do some paperwork once they arrived at the station constable hall tried to grab ned to place him under arrest but ned resisted this caused the officer to draw his sidearm and he tried to shoot ned three times but the gun misfired ned jumped onto the officer and dug his boot spurs into the officer's thighs the officer's screams drew several townspeople who grabbed Ned, took him off the helpless constable, and held Ned down. Constable Hall then used his pistol to strike Ned over the face and head until he was nothing but bloody raw flesh. Ned was charged with horse theft, but it was later revealed the horse was taken while Ned was known to be in another town, 
so his charges were downgraded to receiving stolen property and he was sentenced to three years of hard labor. So again, the entire particulars about this horse are a, quite fuzzy and basically comes down to this horse that supposedly got loose, it was more than likely stolen, but the night that it was stolen, there were witnesses that said Ned was in another town, so he couldn't have actually stolen the horse. Now we are gonna learn down the road that Ned is very proficient with stealing horses, so it may be a thing, and, and there's gonna be what are called sympathizers throughout the next uh, two episodes here. Sympathizers are people that are part of this Kelly country that are also anti-police, and basically they're not committing crimes with the gang, but they will assist the gang, they will lie for the gang, they will help the gang in any way possible. And so it's, it's very possible just like in the trial where people wouldn't identify him for the highway robberies, that in this case all it took was somebody saying, hey, that night that horse was taken, Ned was in a, in a different town, he couldn't have taken that horse. Well, there's no cell phone data to track at that point. There's no security cameras. There's no anything to prove. So you had to take people at their word unless you could find somebody who was willing to speak out otherwise, which this is Kelly country, so you probably aren't going to find somebody. So instead of getting charged with horse theft, which in a lot of cases was a death sentence, he gets charged with receiving stolen property. The judge believes he probably knew the horse was stolen, but they can't prove it. They can't prove that he stole the horse. So he's going to get these three years of hard labor for receiving the stolen horse and riding it. And he served two and a half years before being released for good behavior and returning to Kelly country. While he was away, his brother James had been jailed for horse theft and his mother had married an American man named George King. Angry over his imprisonment for a stolen horse he believed to have just escaped, he challenged Isaiah Wright, and that was the guy that told him this mare had escaped, to a boxing match to settle the score. The bare-knuckle match took place on August 8, 1874, and went 20 rounds before Ned was declared the winner. The match resulted in the two men forgiving each other and becoming good friends. Ned went on the straight and narrow for a couple years in 1875 and 1876. But in early 1877, he was drawn back into the criminal world when he was recruited to help steal horses with his brothers and stepfather. Several other men, including Isaiah Wright, helped the gang, and it's reported that the men stole as many as 280 horses that year. In September of 1877, Ned was arrested for, the way it was described was something along the lines of proceeding down a path while drunk, and I don't know if this meant he was riding a horse drunk or if this was a intoxicated in public type of charge. The charge itself could lead you to believe it was either. Either he was out drunk causing an issue in public or he was drunk and riding a horse and that was causing issues. It, it was a really weird charge that I couldn't really figure out the origin of it, but Basically, he's going to get arrested while drunk, which led to a fight between him and four officers of the law. One of the officers was named Constable Fitzpatrick, who was known to be a friend of the Kelly family, and another was Constable Lonigan, whom Ned would later complain grabbed him by the testicles during the fight. He was fined for his crimes and released. But Ned's brief brush with the law was about to get a lot worse. 
Some of those 280 horses that had been stolen belonged to a man named James Whitty. He was a prominent local man. He discovered that his brand had been altered on several of the stolen horses and sold to a local horse dealer. The horse dealer was investigated, and the paperwork for the horse deal gave police evidence against the Kelly gang. Warrants for Ned Kelly, Dan Kelly, and George King were issued in March of 1878. Although George King had disappeared in the winter, and no record of him after that time period exists. And again, in order to try to tie this into modern times, I'm looking at it as if it's some type of an auto theft ring, and so it's almost as if they're going to this dealership and stealing cars from the dealership. They then take the cars to a chop shop where they alter the the VINs, the vehicle identification number, and then they're selling it to another dealer. And back in the the 1870s, instead of having VINs and cars, of course, we have horses and brands. So if these horses are branded with this James Whitty brand, what they were doing was they had another part that they would add to the existing brand on these horses so that it would no longer look like a James Whitty brand, it would be a, a new brand. And then they would sell the horses and they would look like they were branded to the Kelly gang. And James Whitty is able to prove that, that his brand has been altered on these horses, that they're really his horses. And then of course they go to the horse dealer who's likely facing serious charges unless he gives up paperwork who he paid for these horses which is going to point directly to the kelly gang on april 11 1878 a police supervisor was given a tip that ned was shearing sheep in new south wales and the supervisor was given permission to try and effect the arrest of ned kelly constable fitzpatrick a friend of the kelly family was sent to the station in kelly country to replace the missing supervisor the attempted arrest of Dan Kelly on April 15, 1878, led to a new chapter in the story of Ned Kelly. There are two versions of the story, one told by the arresting officer, Constable Fitzpatrick, and the other by the Kelly family. According to the Kelly family, Ned was not present during the arrest attempt. This appears to be backed up by the report that authorities were looking for him in New South Wales over 200 miles from the family property. The Kelly family told reporters that on April 15th, Constable Fitzpatrick showed up drunk without an arrest warrant for Dan. Ellie, Ned's mother, stated she told Fitzpatrick he couldn't arrest Dan with just a telegram and Dan wasn't going anywhere. And this has carried on this tradition all the way to today. When a police officer makes an arrest based off an arrest warrant, there's requirements within legal proceedings that that person must be presented with the warrant. It's, it's the same thing with the search warrant. They get a, a copy of the search warrant when the search warrant occurs. And, and this is so that a police officer later can't say, oh, I thought there was an arrest warrant for this person. And so it was really important back in the 1870s to have this actual paperwork with you because it wasn't, let's go out to the car and look it up on my computer or anything along those lines. And the Kelly family, they're pretty well versed at this point in police procedure. They've, they've had their plenty of run-ins with the law at this point, and they know that a telegram from Melbourne say, stating, try to arrest Dan Kelly, doesn't count as a legal document. So Ellie sees this telegram and says that that doesn't count. We need to see the actual arrest warrant. And this led Constable Fitzpatrick to draw his revolver and threaten Ellie, telling her he would blow her brains out if she interfered. Ellie laughed off the threat and told Fitzpatrick that he 
wouldn't be so brave if Ned was there. Dan then tricked the officer by telling him Ned was walking by the window and lunged and disarmed the officer while he was distracted. The family sent the unarmed officer out of the house uninjured and empty-handed. So again, that's the story from the Kelly family, at least the initial story that the Kelly family tell after this incident. And that's Ned's not there. Ned was never there. That uh, Constable Fitzpatrick showed up drunk without an arrest warrant. He's threatened to kill uh, the mother, Ellie, and they tricked him, disarmed him, and sent him out, out of the house. But in yet another version of events, one that was told by James Kelly 30 years later, he affirmed that Constable Fitzpatrick was drunk, but in this version, James said the officer tried to make advances on Catherine Kelly, which is Ned and Dan and James' sister, who was 14 at the time, and Dan threw him to the floor. A scuffle ensued, and Ned was there and came into the home and disarmed the officer, and during the fight, Fitzpatrick's wrist struck a projecting piece of metal, causing a deep wound. And so this is going to be because Fitzpatrick, as we're going to learn here soon, claims that Ned Kelly shoots him in the wrist. So in the initial story given by the family, they release Castle Fitzpatrick out of the house, and he's uninjured and now unarmed. And then he's going to show up at a nearby hotel with this severe wrist injury that he is going to claim from getting shot by Ned Kelly. However, that doesn't fit the families of version of events and I think originally they said well he must have self-inflicted the wound after he left the house but they had taken his revolver away so he couldn't have shot himself so now we have this new story 30 years later where the narrative has changed to well yes Ned was there but Officer Fitzpatrick was disarmed because he was making advances on this 14 year old Kelly girl and that during the scuffle, he hit his wrist on this piece of metal that was sticking out of door frame or something along those lines, and this caused a severe cut to his wrist. He was never shot. However, Constable Fitzpatrick's version of events was that on the way to the Kelly homestead to try to arrest Dan, he stopped at a hotel and had a single brandy and lemonade. When he arrived at the Kelly home, Dan wasn't there, and he had a conversation with Ellie for an hour and then heard someone chopping wood. As wood chopping was illegal without a license, Constable Fitzpatrick went to check on the activity and found a neighbor of the Kellys chopping wood that he claimed he didn't need a license for because it was wood for personal use from his property. And this again speaks to the American colonies. They wanted to get out from British rule because there were so many different laws and taxes, any way that they could make money off of people they were so obviously this continued into Australia where farmers are out just cutting down wood and if they try to sell that wood then their loggers or, or lumberjacks or whatever you want to call it and then they're making money off of that and that needs to be taxed and so in order to do that you need to have a license to cut down wood even on your own property this neighbor saying hey I'm cutting down wood on my own property for my own personal use I don't need to have a license for this. And while discussing the matter with the neighbor, Fitzpatrick said he saw Dan Kelly and a friend riding up to the house on horseback. He met the men at the house and advised Dan of the arrest warrant. Dan requested to eat dinner before returning to the station with Fitzpatrick, and the request was granted. According to Fitzpatrick, as Dan was eating dinner, Ned rushed in and shot at Fitzpatrick, but missed. 
Ellie grabbed a shovel and hit Fitzpatrick on the head, and the officer drew his sidearm and shot and Ned shot him in the wrist. The men disarmed Fitzpatrick, and then Ned told his friend he didn't know it was him and he wouldn't have shot at him if he did know. And so I'm guessing these police officers, either it was something about their horses or their saddles or something that would have given them away that, that there was a police officer in the home. So Fitzpatrick's story is that Ned rushes in the home thinking that an officer is in there potentially doing something to his family. So he rushes in there and shoots first, which doesn't really fit a narrative or a story that that matches anything i mean he would have no idea what the officer would be there that the family does have lots of run-ins with the police so for him to just rush into the house and and try to shoot an officer without knowing who it is or why he's there doesn't seem to make a lot of sense and this is what caused ellie to grab the shovel and hit him which is what caused him to draw his gun which then Ned actually shoots two more times and one of the shots hits him in the wrist. And and so again, I don't believe the Kelly version of events, but I also don't re- believe Constable Fitzpatrick's version of events. And just like my time as a police officer, whenever you're hearing two different stories from two different sides of an argument, the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. And Fitzpatrick lost consciousness and when he came to, Ned had his mother extract the bullet from Fitzpatrick's wrist and dress the injury. The family told Fitzpatrick to lie about what had happened or they would kill him. After Fitzpatrick started riding away, he claimed two unknown men on horseback began to chase him, but he was able to elude them and make it back to the hotel, where his wound was again dressed and the hotel manager rode to the police station to inform his supervisor at the incident. And so, I mean, the parts of the story that are really difficult for me to believe, one I've already covered that Ned would just rush into the, the house and start shooting at a unknown police officer for an unknown reason two that kelly's mother is going to extract this bullet from his wrist at the scene of the house and then turn him loose and tell him not to tell anybody what happened and this is why i I tend to believe more of what happened in the in the version that was said 30 years later Uh, oftentimes when we're talking about the versions that are being said right after this incident occurs. There's more reason for people to lie. There's obviously reasons for Fitzpatrick to not tell the whole truth about what happened, and there's reasons for the Kelly family to not tell the whole truth what happened. But 30 years later, usually there's less reasons to lie. I mean, 30 years later, and spoiler alert, but Ned's going to be dead. So there doesn't really seem to be a reason why James would would lie at that point other than legacy or trying to keep up a good image but what he's saying with this constable making advances on the the daughter seems to make more sense which could have led to a scuffle which could have led to a wrist injury that wasn't a gunshot and when constable Fitzpatrick rides away from the home he may be thinking god I've got to come up with a story about how my wrist got hurt and how I got attacked by the Kelly family and so I'll come up with this Ned shot me thing even though from what everybody believed Ned was 200 miles away at the time that this this happened so I think there's a lot of embellishment from Council Fitzpatrick and I think there's a lot of mistruths from the Kelly family as well about this entire incident but the police returned in force to the Kelly house but Ned and Dan were long gone and nowhere to be found Two family friends and Ellie Kelly were arrested and brought before a judge six months later. 
Despite evidence being offered that contradicted Fitzpatrick's story, the judge found the three adults guilty of aiding the attempted murder of Constable Fitzpatrick. The two friends were sentenced to six years of hard labor, and Ellie was sentenced to three years of hard labor. Ellie's sentence was considered extremely harsh and turned the public against the police because Ellie had given birth to a child she had with the now-missing George King, and the child was still nursing at the time. So this is her ninth child, the eighth, eighth living one, because she lost the first child while uh, she was an infant. But from everything that I read, this George King, he kind of he's an American. He kind of comes into her life long enough to help steal all these horses and all of a sudden in, in the winter he disappears nobody sees him again and it's either believed that he disappeared he gave some type of an alias he was just looking for a place to to stay and make some money off this this horse sale basically left the kelly gang hanging out in the wind with with this big crime they committed and then there's other people that believe that he was going to rat out members of the Kelly gang or pissed off the wrong person in Kelly country and he was killed and, and left out in the bush and that's why nobody ever found him again. But George King and Ellie have this child together. It's an infant at the time that he is now left and this whole incident occurs with the, uh, Constable Fitzpatrick. So when she's sentenced to three years of hard labor, a lot of people, even some other judges, didn't like the sentence because you were putting a mother of a infant who was nursing this child into prison and it just the optics of it for the police was not good they already had issues with people against them up in kelly country and things are only going to get worse and as the public sentiment against the police and for the kelly family started to grow the officials decided to mount an offensive against the kelly gang the results of that offensive would cement Ned Kelly and his gang as Australia's best-known bushranger and establish him as the legend he is today. So just real quick, we're going to recap this in the next episode as well before we really get into the, the crimes that he became known for. I think it's important we just we look at what's going on here. Again, I try to take people back in the time period. It's, it's a lot harder to do when it's the 1870s, and, and at least for American listeners, it's harder to do when it's a continent you may have not visited or, or spent very much time in, even if you have. But again, this is very much like the Wild West of America. The difference is, instead of having, whether it be local marshals or elected deputy sheriffs or whatever it might be you've got these appointed police superintendents and police officers that are basically doing the will of the british government via the victorian government and as a result there's a lot of corruption going on there's a lot of looking the other way when some people commit crimes and building crimes out of nothing for other people it's uh, very class structure based the the rich elite of the area are deciding what laws are enforced and and who they're being enforced upon and in the movie this constable fitzpatrick he's running a brothel at the time and he becomes you know a, a close friend of ned kelly's via running this brothel but there just was not a whole lot of professionalism going on we'll just put it that way with with these police officers in the movie one of the police officers 
continually sexually assaults Ellie Kelly in order for the family to be left alone. And again, whether or not that's a lot of creative liberty taken in the story, uh, there's other creative liberties like the, the gang wearing dresses uh, when they commit crimes or Red Kelly, Ned's father, being part of this group of bush rangers that wore dresses because wearing dresses scared people, men in dresses scared the, the authorities, whatever it might be. Again, there's a lot of creative liberties taken in that movie, but I think the basis of it, it, it sets a, a, a tone that the the whole birth of this Kelly legend, the whole birth of Kelly, the Kelly gang, the Kelly country, everything like that was because this is after England has stopped sending convicts to Australia, and Australia is trying to establish an identity. They want to be independent just like America but they're under the oppressive boot of the British Empire at this time and then as they believe that the government is is tyrannical they face hardship after hardship after hardship and a lot of it is brought on them by the the local police so this is and and they're not the only ones experiencing this. I mean, obviously the story centers on the Kelly family, but this is something that's going on. It's pervasive throughout Kelly country. So really the story of Ned Kelly is a story of people rising up against this, uh, this tyranny and this oppression, and, and that's what we're going to get to more in the next episode. But stay tuned for part two of the series as we wrap up the life of Ned Kelly after his gang's rise to infamy. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.